Joe Metcalf, it's a real, real privilege to be here, and I thank you very much for inviting me and giving us, me, the opportunity to tell this Air Force story. How many of you in here are volunteers here at the museum? Wow, I salute you, that's great. Where's Herb Weatherhead? Here. Stand up, Herb. Herb's an RTB, he's a classmate of mine, he's been a friend of mine for over 40 years. And Herb's a volunteer here too. Good to see you tonight, Herb. And my guys down here, two of the greatest fighter pilots I know, you guys stand up. Brett Hurst and uh, Mike Mathis, we call them... call them Mega and Sachs. You see them on the street or in the BX, say hi. These guys flew F-15s at Nellis, uh, both fighter weapons school grad, Air Force weapons school graduates. Can't say fighter weapons school anymore. How many of you here have flown air combat against other aircraft? Cool. Are any of you aces or have kills? Okay. Um, does anybody in here have uh, experience flying against the constant peg aircraft? One. Great. And how about, do I have any constant peg pilots in here that I don't know about? Well, I'm going to tell you a story about that tonight. And it's such a story that you could almost start it out with once upon a time. Uh, because it's, um, it's almost unbelievable. It was said to me once by a general, he said, shook his head at what we had done, and he said, man, you give three fighter weapons school graduates a credit card and get out of the way and see what happens. <laughs> so, let's talk about it. This is a quick overview. I want to talk a little bit about why we did it and how we made it happen. I think that's really the guts of the whole program. Um, and then everyone always wants to talk about the jets, what they were like. So I've got a few pictures, and we can talk about that a little bit. And then where are we now? Where are we going? What's happening? As best I know. So with that said, if you were to ask a question about the most difficult thing you could do in an airplane, then maybe this particular list would be almost all-inclusive. You know, night weather formation in combat. I've done that. That was hard. Um, but I would submit that none of those are the most difficult thing you can do. The most difficult thing is air-to-air -air combat, where one's trying to kill the other, and neither one is cooperating with the other toward that end. And so you have lots of things going on in a very dynamic arrangement. And if you're going to be good, you might survive. But if you're not good, you ain't going to survive. And so, to get good, you've got to be trained. It's not something that comes with getting the wings slapped on your chest or getting your G-suit issued. You've got to learn how to do that. So, I'm very fortunate in one way and very sad in another way. I'm sad because all of the constant peg archives have been lost. We are told that they were lost in the vault in the Pentagon that was hit on 9-11. But nevertheless, they have disappeared. What makes me happy was to look into the internet and other research efforts and learn 
that the exploitation of the MiG-17 and of the MiG-21 in two programs called Have Drill and Have Donut have been declassified. And therefore, I can draw from those archives to tell this story. And that's what makes it happen. When General Metcalf asked me if I would do this, and I said, yes, I want to tell this story. And then the next question is, how am I going to do that? And then I got into so much, the question is, how am I going to limit this <laughs> so that it can be done in a reasonable amount of time? So these guys that did the have drill and have donut were testing airplanes. They weren't training with them. There were training points that came out of it, nevertheless. But they were training points that then were passed on academically, not by exposure of one pilot against another with the exposed pilot being the trainee. Instead, he was an academic recipient of a lecture about what these guys learned. Okay? So, thanks to Have Drill and Have Donut, none of my airplanes were marked. They were all just plain silver. So, take that and remember that, that these are donut and drill airplanes. Okay? <clears throat> when I came back from Southeast Asia, I was a little bit angry about the training that we received before we went to Southeast Asia. And I found that I wasn't the only one that felt that way. Um, many of us then pretty much dedicated the rest of our Air Force careers to trying to fix that. Notable names like John Jumper were among them and Dick Myers. And we worked real hard to make that happen. So let me just tell you a couple of points about history. In World War I and World War II, we had airplanes against airplanes. In World War I, they started with pistols and then they transitioned to machine guns, right? Shoot through the prop, even. Cool. World War II, same thing. Machine guns. Swirling cauldrons of fighters going at it with each other, trying usually to defend bombers. Well, we go to Korea, and what happens in Korea? We have jets, but we still have machine guns. We're still shooting at 600 to 1,000 feet. And along comes Vietnam. And Nguyen shows up at 6 o'clock at a mile and starts popping us with air-to-air -air missiles. And we can't even see the guy. That's a big change. It's a big change. And so the formations that we flew, typically called a fluid four, was a dinosaur in our time. In the patrol formation, two elements, one of which was about four to 6,000 feet from the other with the wingmen 1,500 to 2,000 feet apart from their wingman or their leader. The wingman's job was to cover the leader. The leaders were the shooters. And so you hop into trail, into a cone, a fighting wing cone, when you get engaged, and you don't let the bad guys come up and shoot your leader with a machine gun. Well, that wasn't really the issue that we were up against. I can take an F-4 and in 125, 135 degrees of bank in six and a half Gs, do a 180 degree turn in about 16 or 17 seconds. And yet these big fluid four formations that we were flying would take minutes to turn this formation around sometimes to face the enemy. So it wasn't working. The guys came up with some new type turns and I'll show you some of that here real quick. This is a delayed 90 turn with a flight of four. And you can see the leader there and the gives a little wing rock. And then number three starts his turn. 
and they complete that turn in, what, 25, 30, 45 seconds, 90 degrees a turn. Pretty sweet. This was a big change, let me tell you. This was a big thing. We learned how to do this during the summer of 1972 during linebacker. And guys like Richie and Lodge, uh, they were the ones that invented this stuff. And we at Fighter Weapons School were sitting there as instructors devouring the information that was pouring in on how they were doing fighter tactics. And we went to school on it, and we learned that if that guy only turns 45 degrees, as in this case, unless you're planned for it, number three and four are going to end up in trail. And that wasn't good at all tactically. So the formations were starting to evolve, and that was a big part of it. We'll talk about that a little more. Sucked at six, we called it. So the thing that we were up against were an anachronistic or a dinosaur-like set of rules and tools that we were trained with and that we were being trained to. And Fluid 4 was a part of that. Another part of it was no dissimilar training. They would send two of us up neither of whom is more skilled than the other, both flying similar type airplanes, using the same tactics against each other, and we were supposed to learn something from that. It was short. The learning was there, but it wasn't going far enough. We were able to make this happen against a lot of hyper Air Force resistance. The Korean War Mafia was still in place. And God love him, General Blasse had written his No Guts, No Glory, and it was the classified still then Bible for fighter aviation and tactics. But it wasn't working. So we started advocating there at Nellis, and we got slapped down a few times. Meanwhile, the Navy and Air Defense Command are flying loose deuce and double attack, which emphasized two fighters, both of whom are shooters, in a fighting pair. We thought that was a pretty good idea. We got slapped about the head and shoulders. Can't get back in fighting wing, dude. And uh, so we pressed it to the next level and said, well, let's play this out. Let's just take the element leaders out, and we'll have phantom wingmen. And then we can have so-called detached mutual support between these two participating shooters. One's engaged, one's free, and so forth. Well, that worked good. And suddenly we were on our way, and we took two flights of two and put them together, everybody a shooter, and then two flights of four, and suddenly we had a wall. That's what these guys in the Eagles still use today. It's their primary attack deal. Well, along this story then came the aggressors. We needed realistic, dedicated people that could go out and serve as the adversaries. That's another story. Red flag evolved. And suddenly we were bringing the jets to Nellis and training people there, using aggressors as adversaries, and everybody was learning to work as a team. We were on our way. Getting real MIGs in the fight was the final step, and that's what Constant Peg was all about. So, I was a major at the Pentagon, selected for lieutenant colonel, and I inherited some programs that caused me to go in to General Vandenberg's office one day, say, sir, we really need to get MIGs into this program, take it to the next level. And he pulled one of these Captain Quig-type stunts on me where he walked over to his desk and opened up this little box that had two steel balls in it. And he went and he sat down in his chair and kind of slumped down. And he's working these things. And he says, 
what do you have in mind, Major? I said, well, we, we, we build an airfield and we get real MIGs and we, uh, we uh, train against them. Instead of all this testing stuff, we train. He says, that sounds like a hell of an idea to me. He says, why don't you go talk to Donnelly up on the fourth floor? So I go out and I talk to General Donnelly and he says, well, I think that's a hell of a good idea. He said, I'll make you a deal. I can get you the jets if you can figure out how to, how to build the airfield. I'm thinking, what have I gotten myself into? So I go back downstairs and brief General Vandenberg on the results of this conversation. And um, he says, that sounds like a go to me. Let's do it. And I'm thinking, whoa. All I could think of to say was, sir, what's your call sign? And so he said, constant. All the programs that belonged to the XOO at the air staff at that time frame were called constant. So I'm walking back down the hall, and I'm thinking of my wife, Peggy, and I say to myself, self, constant peg has a pretty nice ring to it. And so thus it was named. People ask me, Peggy died in 2002. Miss her a lot, but life moves on. And people ask me, did she know about this program? And I say, yeah. Because one Saturday, Vandenberg was in a really cranky mood, and he said, I want, you know the way they are. <laughs> and um, we said, sir, we don't have a secretary that can do that. He said, oh, you guys don't know a single secretary with a top secret clearance in the whole thing? So, yes, sir, I know one. He said, who's that? I said, Peggy. He said, who's Peggy? I said, that's my wife. He said, she got a top secret clearance? I said, yeah. He said, get her in here. We briefed her, and so she was in on the program from the get-go. She was always a little squeamish about discussions about it and around it, but uh, she knew, and I'm glad to say that. Constant peg. So the starting lineup then, we've already talked about Vandenberg and Donnelly. We had General Curry, who was the PRP. He was a program guy at the Pentagon at the time. And also Colonel now uh, retired two-star General Dick Murray, and he was the money guy. He knew how to spend money and how to get it done and spent the right way without anybody going to jail. <laughs> and uh, I was the guy with the folder under my arm <laughs> racing up and down stairwell 94 and other places in the five-sided squirrel cage. <coughs> At TAC, my number one good buddy was D.L. Smith, Dave Smith. D.L. was famous for knocking down the Paul Doomer Bridge with the laser-guided bombs during linebacker. Fighter Weapons School graduate. At Nellis, I had Lieutenant Colonel Glenn Frick, who was busy, busy, busy writing a history of aerial combat in the Vietnam War called Red Baron, a Fighter Weapons School graduate. He hauled Chuck Holden over to help him, and Chuck was an immense help because Chuck knew how to fly light airplanes, and none of the rest of us did. That became important. Mary Jane Smith, my favorite woman in all of life, other than the ones I'm married to and related to, was the woman at the other end of Dick Murray's conduit of money. When I needed money, I went to see Mary Jane. And I'll tell you another story about Mary Jane in a minute. So that was the lineup. Three fighter weapons school graduates and a credit card, so to speak. But the thing that really made it happen, and right here at Wright Field, 
back in 1974, I was a part of a group called a Tactical Fighter Modernization Study Group, where we were looking at the operational derivatives of the lightweight fighter program, the YF-16, YF-17. And during that time frame, I met Colonel Bond. And so Colonel Bond somehow got wind of this constant peg program. At the time, he was in the five-sided squirrel cage on the fourth floor in, in RDQ-R, if you remember those alphabet soups. And so Colonel Bond called me on the phone and said, why don't you come up to my office? And so I hiked up to his office all the way on the other side of the building on the fourth floor from the sub-basement where I worked. And he said, come on in, shut the door. So I shut the door and give you an idea how security has changed. He had windows that actually overlooked Crystal City. And he reaches down, sits down, and he opens a two-drawer safe. And he pulls the safe door open and pulls out a folder, hands me the folder, and he says, have a look at this. And that's what I was looking at. Say, holy mackerel, what's that? He said, well, it has the radar cross-section of a sparrow. And you need to figure out how to get yourself briefed on this because I think somehow this is going to fit in this program that you have in mind. But wow, okay. So over the next period of time, I was able to figure out how to get briefed, and uh, they very reluctantly did bring me into the program. And uh, so what happened then was a strategy developed based on what was hoped to be an operational need for an operating location for the stealth fighter. And so that was a part of the advocacy from the very get-go. We're going to fly MiGs by day and stealth by night, and that's the way it's going to be. And so General Curry then shows up and says, dudes, I figured out how we can make this happen financially. I said, how's that, sir? He said, well, the SecDef has a $10 million emergency military construction fund. And we can tap into that fund and spend it any way we want to. We don't have to ask Congress. All we got to do is go and inform the chairman of the House and Senate Armed Services and Appropriations Committees. Wow, way cool. Can we get the money? He said, I think so, but that's going to be a part of your job. I said, so once we get it, how do, what do we do? He said, well, there's a much-forgotten law called the Economic Recovery Act of 1932, which is uh, Franklin Roosevelt New Deal, wherein one government agency can pass money to another government agency, and nobody asks questions. He said, and those guys in the Department of Energy have a bunch of sole source contracts. They don't have to bid them out. So what we can do is we can then get them to bid out to Holmes and Narver or to to ask Holmes and Narber to do the architectural and engineering work for us because they do that kind of work for DOE. And then we can get RICO, Reynolds Electric and Engineering Company, which is the on-scene contractor out at the Nevada test site, to build this thing for us. Yes. <laughs> so then came the question of where do we do this? And so I had a short list that we put together. There were different advocates in different parts of the community that knew about this, that all had, um, had an interest and an advocacy. My good friend Moody Souter wanted to put it on the Goldwater Ranges down there south of uh, Luke. I don't remember anybody wanted to put it at Dugway, but they said we ought to take a look. And, of course, Tonopah. So just to orient you here a little bit, here's Las Vegas down here. 
all the way up around the Nellis Ranges and the test site where they blew up the nukes, and all the way up here is the little mining town of Tonopah. And right in this area is the Tonopah Test Range, and they had a little airfield up there. And what did they do at the Tonopah Test Range? Their job was to test the release systems for nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons release testing. That was their J-O-B. So I thought, well, we ought to go up there and take a look. I wonder how we ought to do that. So I sat down with my friend Glenn Frick, and uh, Glenn said, well, I think we know how to do that. He said, let's talk a little bit more about this Tonopah place. He said, it's pretty remote. He says, they got a famous hotel called, called the Mizpah, and they got a mining museum that's got a bunch of mine shafts and stuff like that, but otherwise it's pretty sleepy. I thought, perfect. <laughs> that sounds good. And this is Tonopah from space. If you can find it, let me know. <laughs> and so Glenn Frick tasked Chuck Holden to put me in the right seat of this airplane, 1592 uniform, of which we made many, many trips, a Cessna 207, and we flew to Tonopah, landed at the test range. And that's what we found. That's what we found. They were operating out of the DOE compound about right here. And if you look close, you can see the Fokker or whatever it was they were operating out of. It took them a couple hours to fly up there every day and to fly home. Not much there. That's what the DOE compound looked like. And you can see the big dry lake out there that, uh, where they did the nuke weapons release testing. And from space, see the airfield right here, DOE compound right here, and all these approaches down that way. And from the ground, perfect. Perfect. Nobody around, nobody bother us. Get the J-O-B done. So I get on a Western airliner headed down to Phoenix to go look at the... Um, at the Goolwater Ranges, the Tila Bend area, and I pulled out a, um, this is another lie, incidentally. If you look closely, that's a Continental napkin. The original Western Airlines napkin, I couldn't get any napkins for this presentation. And, uh, but that's what the original one was written on, and it actually was framed and was a part of that missing archive. So, but that's about what it looked like. And so what my idea was, we take and expand this runway. We don't need taxiways. All we need is a turnaround at each end. We'll build a little compound here, put up three hangars. We'll have one area in here for ops and one area in here for maintenance. Keep the airplanes inside. We'll have a place right here to park our airplanes and for Sam Moore, the DOE guy, to park his airplane. We thought that would be cool. And uh, here's where we'll put our POL. We'll have them uh, just, just put in some jet fuel there, and uh, that's what we'll do. Well, I never did go to the Goldwater Range. I just turned around and went back to the Pentagon. said, we've found our site. We're going to go to Tonopah. And so I, I briefed the generals, and they said, sounds good to me. We're convinced. No problem at all. Let's put together a package. So I sat down with a two-fingered artist, the name of Jerry Hansen, and Jerry helped me put together an advocacy briefing book, of which there were just a couple made. And I put that under my arm or in a sealed briefcase and go around and start trying to top-line this whole project through the Pentagon about how we're going to have stealth fighters and MiGs and, and do it at Tonopah and how we're going to finance it and the whole works. And let me tell you something. This whole project was like buying a franchise or whatever they call it 
for an NFL football team having your choice of number one draft picks indefinitely, going to the Super Bowl and winning the whole thing the first try. There was nobody that was a showstopper in this whole deal. In fact, I used to love to go in and brief General Curry because his exec would show me in and he'd get up from his desk and he'd walk over and pull off his World War II leather flight jacket and put it on and he'd come around and sit down around the coffee table in front of his desk. He wouldn't take the briefing standing up or anything. He'd say, what do we got today? What do we got? How can I help? What's going on? And, um, and so we worked it. And D.L. Smith was very busy down at Langley doing the same kind of advocacy there. Ultimately, it had to be staffed through the third floor of the Office Secretary of Defense so we get clearance to go across the river. I mean, after all, we were going to spend the SecDef's money. And um, there was a retired Navy admiral, a four-star, that took the brief. I don't remember his name, but he was an assistant vice secretary of something. And he's the one that signed off on the whole thing. And uh, so I took my little briefing book and my locked briefcase and went across the river to Congress and sat down with... Um, with the senior staffers for each one of those, uh, those chairmen of those various committees that I mentioned, the Armed Services and the Appropriations Committee for both the House and the Senate. Told them what we were going to do, that we were going to dip into this uh, money, and that's what was going to happen. And they said, great, what a great idea. You guys are all over it. We're 100% behind you. It's wonderful. Do it. So we did. And um, so meanwhile, the boys at Nellis here had taken my napkin and given it to a contractor they had purview over. I believe BDM had the contract at the time. And they had them put together a project book, which is something that's suitable to submit to an architect. And so we got that project book down to Homes in Narver, down in Orange, California. And a couple weeks later, I get a call from a guy named Augie at Homes in Narver. He says, can you come out for a powwow? Sure. So I come out, LAX, go over to Orange, Go into this place, kind of looking around. I got on my ice cream suit, just like he's got on right there. And um, I walk into this conference room. It's a big, long conference room with this long table with people sitting at every chair except at the end of the table. And Augie looks at me, and he says, you sit there. So I sit at the end of the table. There's lemon water and cupcakes and cookies and stuff like that. I should have had my spider senses on at that point. And he goes through this elaborate briefing of all this architectural and engineering design work that they have done. And I am spellbound because it is exactly what we had in mind. They could not have hit it any better at all. And I said, well, Augie, that just, he says, so what do you think? And I said, Augie, that looks really great. And then he was silent for a minute. And then another dramatic pause. And finally he says, well, Major, are we going to do this or aren't we? This is a Friday morning. And I took a deep breath and said, do it. And I got in my car and I went back to LAX for the longest plane ride I've ever made, back to Washington. By the time I got home, Donnelly was already gone. I couldn't get to anybody to tell him what I'd done. Monday morning, I finally got in and they said, you done good, boy. You're okay. And so thus it was launched. Later, a concept of operations was prepared and staffed through and signed off by the Secretary of the Air Force, which gave us the legitimacy that was ultimately needed. So here's um, engineering drawings of the original three-hanger concept. I found these in a, uh, in a vault up at Tonopah a couple, three weeks ago. I had the privilege of going up there for the bed down of the F-117s. You all know the, uh, the uh, stealth fighters are, coming, are being retired, and they're actually going to retire them at Tonopah back in their original hangars. 
And so I went up for that and was able to root around and find these drawings. And um, there's four or five sheets of them. I only made a slide of one of them, but I gave all the rest of them to the museum this afternoon. So if, uh, if the constant peg display materializes, then you guys have at least some engineering drawings to work from of the original concept. But we needed transportation. That was a hell of a long way from Las Vegas. So one of our guys was another real smart guy on general aviation, so he made arrangements for us to lease two and then three, and then ultimately I think they had four of these Cessna 404s, 11 passengers. I said, so who in hell is going to fly these things? And he says, boss, he says, uh, you're due down at uh, Terra Training on Monday morning. He says, <laughs> he says, we'll all get multi-engine ratings with the FANA. <laughs> And so we did. And um, we'd show up at 5.30 or 6 o'clock every morning. We parked them right at Nellis on the flight line right by the Thunderbird hangar. And we'd show up at 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning, and the first 11 guys would get in the first airplane with the first pilot that showed up and head for Tonopah. And if we ran out of seats, the guys that got there late had to drive. And that's just the way it worked. <laughs> so one day I was sitting at my desk, and uh, Bobby Ellis, God love him, he's passed away now too. Murdered by his wife. Sad story. At any rate, Bobby Ellis comes in and he says, Boss, we need a truck. I said, okay. What do you need? A pickup? A step van? What? He said, um, <clears throat> he said Actually, we already bought the truck. What we need is a check. <laughs> I said, So you're telling me it's time for me to go see Mary Jane again. Is that right? He said, Yeah, that's kind of what we had in mind. And uh, these are all super sergeants in civilian clothes with long, long hair and, and pork chop sideburns and everything because they needed to fit in with the town people in Tonopah because they were spending a lot of nights up there. So we had them out of 3510. That was the reg, dress reg in those days. And so I ziggy down to Mary Jane's office, and Mary Jane had this little game she liked to play with me. I'd walk into her office, and she'd duck down behind her desk. <laughs> and she'd look up over like, what me worry type guy, you know, and... She'd say, is this going to cost me tens, hundreds, tens of thousands, or hundreds of thousands of dollars today? So, well, Mary Jane, today I think I need about 80-something. Oh. She'd write the check out, and we went down and paid for our truck. And that's the truck. And uh, these are the NCOs. That's Bobby Ellis and Jim Richardson and Dave Hollinsworth. Uh, that's Doug, um, um, no, I forget, Ike Crawley. Bob uh, Lyon, or Don Lyon, I had dinner with him the other night, a couple others, Hoover Mail. And what these guys, I'm going to back up a slide here. What these guys did is they went around to all of the DRMOs. Now, those of you that are too, I shouldn't say this, too old to remember what, or too young to know what a DM, whatever I'm trying to say, this is salvage yards. So they went around to the salvage yards all over the West Coast and they harvested junk. And they brought junk by the absolute truckload to Tonopah in trailers like this. And one day they called me and they said, Boss, come on down here to what they call the Indian Village, which was a little place down off the airfield. So I, I said, I want to go down there. It's muddy. They said, come on down here. So I went down there. And uh, they had three of these trailers that they'd taken off the wheels. They had pure steel planking for flooring. They had parachute canopy draped over this U-shaped compound they'd built. These guys were building Jeeps out of all this stuff that they had harvested. <laughs> and they said, sir, we got, the, we got the command vehicle ready for you finally. 
So from there on out, I didn't have to walk at Tonopah. <laughs> but they call it the K Whopper, and they were all over the West Coast. I'm told now this truck is still in service. It's painted red. You'll notice it's a Kenworthy. And um, I had to chuckle a couple of weeks after we got this truck. I'm driving down Interstate 15 on the way to Nellis, and I pull up behind this truck. No trailer, just the truck. And it has this bumper sticker. It says, old truckers never die. They just get a new Peterbilt. And I thought, <laughs> I thought that's why I have a Kenworthy. <laughs> well, the airfield construction got underway. These are from uh, photos that I found at Tonopah, actually, of a later iteration. But still, this is a legitimate Tonopah photo of airfield runway construction. There were times when we had our visitors, our neighbors, came in. The wild Mustangs here, in this case, wandered into the batch plant, left their marks all over the place. <laughs> and that's what the compound looked like from the air when we were done. Look at it a little closer, but I want you to see and notice our compound, the runway, no taxiway, and the DOE compound, okay? And so you look at it a little closer, and here are the three hangers sketched out on the back of a napkin. Here's the POL. Here's the parking area, and some other things that are worth mentioning. In the first place, we got thrifty, and that was a mistake. The thrifty that we got was we didn't concrete the whole apron here. Instead, we had a hard stand of concrete here by the refueling pumps, and we had hard stands over here where we could pull the airplanes out of the hangar and prep them for launch. But jet fuel and asphalt don't go together, and so we had a problem with that. Also, we were short-sighted in our planning, and we ended up going to Holloman on the beg for those WRM inflatable hangars because we needed some place to really legitimately build trucks and Jeeps and weapons carriers, which they ultimately did. We also needed, more importantly, a place to maintain our airspace ground equipment, our age. Uh, Doug Robinson, the guy's name I couldn't remember on that last picture, was our age mechanic, and uh, he needed a place to work. So we ended up actually with about three of these inflated hangars. The Indian Village was over here off the site. It was kind of legitimized eventually into this compound here, still in a pretty much state of a disarray back here, but nevertheless, you got to remember, we were just getting started. Uh, so we equipped it with the MiG-17. This is a threat training facility. If you get to Nellis, come by there. It's an unclassified facility. Now this MiG-17 is parked out front. This is a MiG-21 parked in front of the aggressor squadron there at Nellis. Aggressor squadrons, I should say. And a MiG-23 eventually as well arrived at Tonopah. We also ended up with T-38s for chase airplanes and just for VIP support, give guys instrument checks and stuff like that. Ended up with four of those eventually. And so then the first iteration of change occurred. And suddenly we have a control tower. We have a concrete apron. The Indian village is cleaned up big time. And we got a lot of neighbors, right? Well, that's because this airfield had become truly a home for the F-117s. And General Stafford came up there uh, on my watch, and we visited. He was a three-star. This is a, a, the um, uh, astronaut Stafford. Uh, he was three-star at the Pentagon, and he came up to check this place out to see if, he, if it was going to really be suitable for uh, the operation. As it turned out, it was. And so they started what turned out to be a hundreds of a million dollar expansion project. Now there's another whole set of hangars down here in addition to this first iteration of change. <clears throat>
And so, the stink bugs had a home and so did we. And that worked out cool. That's what it looks like now, overlooking the DOE compound in the foreground here. At the airfield in the background, you can see a parallel taxiway, uh, real jet barriers. Um, they built these two hangars for the MiG-23s when they were introduced up there. And these are all uh, F-117 facilities. So let's talk about the jets a little bit. This is MiG-17, and uh, this is Patty 2, or uh, number 2. Um, I flew this airplane a lot later, uh, so I guess they didn't give it back to whoever they got it from when they did have drill. Uh, but 2 was lost in an accident ultimately. And so, looking at it in flight, tiny, tiny little airplane, but watch him set the wing and suddenly you see a whole lot more to that airplane. And we got a couple of shots of 105 taking a gunshot, and then that doesn't ever go anywhere, so we'll just clip that one off right here. It doesn't hit and blow up. I wish it did, but it doesn't. So we have the MiG-17. Let's look at it a little bit. Centrifugal flow engine, like a T-Bird. It had an afterburner on it, though. The cockpit. Now, these are pictures of the cockpit that I took on, in an air show airplane at Tyndall about three weeks ago. So this is not our airplanes or even the drill article. They were much more beat up and, uh, and didn't look near as nice. And when you see the pictures of the MiG-21 cockpit, think back and remember that this is probably kind of like what the MiG-17s looked like as well. But this guy had pneumatic uh, valves in the cockpit you had to turn. Um, on this side, this is the left canopy rail right here. Windshield would be over here, the dashboard right here. That's the trim switch. There was no trim on the stick. You had to reach over and trim the slab with this electrical switch over there on the, um, on the side. It had a periscope, and this is Jethro sitting in his airshow airplane, but you can see the periscope there on the side. This airplane had no adjustable ejection seat in it. You had to put pads under your butt. And so it was quite a life support issue to go out and, and measure up for your pads. And then the pilots were very protected. Those are my pads. Get your hands off my pads, you know, because everybody has a slightly different seating height. And if you're too low, you can't see over the nose. And if you're too high, your head's banging into the canopy and the periscope and everything. So the periscope was pretty cool. You duck your head a little bit, pull that thing forward, and you could look just right up, and it was focused at infinity, and you could see your 6 o'clock real well through it. Took a little bit of training, kind of like mirrors. You know, if you've flown fighters and used mirrors and fighters, same kind of deal. But, but they, it was useful. <clears throat> That's, um, let me orient you here. This is the windshield right here, and this is the nose of the airplane right here. And that little indicator is the nose landing gear indicator. There were no, there were no lights or anything in the cockpit. You raised the gear and then put the gear handle back to the uh, negative or to the neutral. When you're ready to lower it, you lowered the gear handle. When this little thing popped up, you looked out and checked the main wing. I'll show you that in a second. And then you put the gear... And it'll switch back to neutral. So this was an indicator. Uh, you can see the extreme wing, wing fences here uh, to keep the spanwise flow down from that highly swept wing. And here's the main landing gear um, indicator. So literally, put the gear down, check the nose wheel, look over the sides, and check for these gear indicators. Make sure your gear's down. They had flares. They had four flare ports. 
All the fighter pilots immediately leaned forward and say, flares? How did they use them defensively? Well, they didn't. They used them for communications and com-out type operations at their airfields. So they were strictly um, like the old days. They had them. Uh, this picture of me and Jethro there uh, at Tyndall a couple weeks ago, a month ago. Let's look at MiG-21. Well, this is the Have Donut article. And um, there she is sitting on the ramp. Take a little closer look. She's got a gear indicator like that, too. And if you look out here on the ones on the display on the floor of the museum, they have them also. So you'll know what you're looking at. Okay, you can see how beat up the cockpit is and how busy it is and everything. I want to say, make two points here. When I, when I learned to fly this airplane, I, Don Lyon was my crew chief, and they didn't trust us to start them because they were afraid we'd overtempt the engines. And so you always had a crew chief hanging over the side that was kind of helping you work the throttle and making sure you weren't too aggressive while you were cranking them up. And I looked at this airplane over here and I said, Don, there's no way I can fly this airplane. He said, how come, boss? I said, I'll never know which of those switches goes where. He says, no problem. They all either go up or forward. And I thought, way cool, you know? <laughs> right here is the famous white stripe down the center of the instrument panel. The MiGs had that. Out of control, put the stick on the stripe. And I recovered from more than one out of control, especially in the MiG-17, by doing and following that procedure. Big, beefy, this is in case you, I guess, stop fast, so if you bump your noggin on the windshield, uh, you won't bump it too bad. This is a little head knocker deal that went over the ejection seat because of the way the ejection seat worked, you needed some protection from the canopy. The other side, you can see the throttle, and you could twist that throttle and it would change the diameter, the reticle on the gun sight. Um, you can also see how long that control stick was. It really was long. And on the MiG-17 especially, I flew that airplane a lot of times with both hands. At high speed, it didn't roll well at all. You know, above 350, 400 knots, it took a lot of muscle to get the airplane to roll. And so there's a lot of times you had, I mean, the AB is full on anyway if you're moving tactically and uh, moving that uh, stick around like that. So here they're getting ready to go fly and uh, taxi and... Um, these airplanes had pneumatic brake systems. So you only had a certain number of squeezes on that trigger, on the paddle switch or whatever you want to call it on the stick. You squeeze that and it would apply to the brakes. So there was no nose wheel steering. So you kind of taxied it like a T-bird, those of you that have flown T-birds, and um, differential braking. But the way the braking worked was you squeeze the trigger to brake and then you push the opposite rudder pedal from the direction you want to turn and that would discharge the air from that brake so that you would then pivot around the other one. And so guys learned to taxi this thing, they looked like little fishies in a trout stream, you know, just going down the taxiway like that. <laughs> okay. Took a long time for the uh, engine to spool up, up to 15 seconds from idle to military. And then the AB, three to five seconds to light. Uh, the rudder became effective for steering at about 30 knots. Uh, we could lighten the nose at 140 knots, airborne about 170, and then settle out like a T-38 kind of to either 400 knots or .88 Mach, and then maintain that in your climb. 
It's a real thrill to get in one of these things for the first time by yourself with no two-seater and go fly them. I have to say that. Guys join up on you to that position, and you can just see their eyeballs swelling up out of their heads if that's the first time they've ever seen one for real. Let's see here. Just got several shots here of um, turns and just flying type things. This one doesn't have a drop tank on it in this particular sortie. Sometimes they, we did fly with a drop tank. Didn't seem to do much for us, though. Of more interest probably is when we're flying side by side. Now, below 20,000 feet and above 400 knots, the F-4 had an advantage over the MiG-21. Uh, but the MiG-21 had more than... Um, more instantaneous G available. In other words, he could snatch a bat turn on you uh, and take advantage of you there. The, um, <clears throat> the performance of them was such that up high, it, uh, the MiG had the advantage. Of course, any time the MiG pilot pulled on the stick, that big delta wing, the airspeed would just dissipate very quickly and you end up in a slow speed fight uh, almost always. It was a tiny airplane. The biggest problem that everyone had was finding it, seeing it, keeping it in sight. And you can see how big that wing is uh, in that picture and some of the others. I remember sitting in, in gun, sight, gun tracking type situation and just thinking, there's nothing to that airplane except the wing. All I see is the wing and the body is like a skinny little pencil. So the F-4 would out accelerate it down low. But this guy had climbed any airspeed above 250 knots, the MiG would climb. You get an idea of the size comparisons there, the F-4 and the, uh, the MiG-21. The Navy participated, and we found that the A-4 and the A-7 could both handle the MiG-21 in a close-in uh, scissors fight. Um, and as you'll see here in a second, a uh, A6 actually started out with a disadvantage and turned into an advantage uh, on the MiG-21 at the very end of this little clip right there. It's an A6. So everybody played. I think that's enough of those. Here we are in the landing configuration. Gear, speed brakes. Let's, we'll watch him land. Comes in, got a drag chute. And that was the thing that we learned is, and we had to teach guys is that pay attention to your pitch attitude at the moment you get airborne because that's exactly the pitch attitude you're going to be looking for at the moment of touchdown. And that's been something I've used as a flight instructor technique for many years since. Um, a great one. Okay, a little MiG-21 maintenance there after it's all over. Look at the flogger real quick. This is in our, what we call the petting zoo affectionately. It's the threat training facility there at Nellis. And this is a flogger B that's in there. And um, when you look at him head on, you can see he has a periscope right up here also, as well as a pair of mirrors. Uh, when you look through that periscope, you look right back across the back of the airplane. 
This shows the aft section here. You can see the speed brakes. Of most interest to me is this dorsal fin. It's got this great big humongous dorsal fin, but when the gear's down, that fin would drag the ground, so the thing rotates out of the way into a 90-degree position compared to when it's in flight. Um, this shows where that wing swings and folds back into the cavity when he is um, operating with them swept back. Cockpit, very similar to the others in terms of its... Um, Busyness, the left side. The throttle actually slides on this rail. It's actually, you move it on a rail. Kind of interesting. Through the gun sight. Quick peek there at the control stick, and you can see that brake lever I was talking about. My fingers there are squeezing it. This one had electric trim on the switch. That's what that big, um, this guy right here was other buttons to operate the weapon system and the avionics. And so what did we do? Well, we started out, we did side-by-sides where we'd have the guys join up on us and just take a look, and that's where their eyeballs would pop out of their heads. It was really fun to watch, even more fun to debrief them after one of those sorties and have them express their excitement <clears throat> over this whole issue. Then we say, okay, <clears throat> go back into a guns track. They pop up back here, and we make a gentle turn and let them try to put the pipper on us and gun strike us. And then uh, what we call an offensive perch attack here. We say, okay, take a perch, dude. He'd go back up here on maybe three to 9,000 feet and he'd call fights, we'd call fights on. We'd do a little defensive turn. He would try to maneuver with a system of yo-yos, we call them, to try to maneuver into that gun tracking position. And then as their proficiency increased, we would harden the turns and harden our defensive maneuvers to challenge them and get them used to it. Um, then we'd put them out front and let them see how hard it was to see a MiG-21 looking at you right over your shoulder. You're pulling five Gs trying to, trying to keep track of this little bitty guy or even find him to start with. So that went on. Then we went to butterfly setups where we'd be side by side. We'd turn away right to the threshold of loss of sight, turn back inbound, cross pass head on, canopy to canopy, and then that was fights on. And then you'd fight to see who could get an advantage on the other one using all the sophisticated basic fighter maneuver techniques. Tactical intercepts, moving back out where they could use radar to try to intercept us and then convert in from this radar arena into a visual arena, which is the ultimate challenge, and then finally you put them all together into multi-ship type tactics. And toward the end of the program, they were actually going out and launching most of the airplanes that we had and saying, good morning, America, to the guys who are arriving at Red Flag. And you talk about some eyeballs popping out when that happened. This is one of the only pictures that we have inside the hangar up there. In this case, I'm re-enlisting uh, Staff Sergeant Doug Robinson. And this is one of our MiG-21s in the background. This is a pedo boom and one of the others in the foreground. Taken illegally, clandestinely by a Polaroid, but I'm glad somebody did it, and then they had the courage to give it to me later. Just a list of the commanders. I'm sure there's not a great interest there unless you know some of them. Um, Mike Scott of interest was one of the pilots that I hired. I was the first commander at Tonopah. Glenn Frick stood the unit up at Nellis, then he made colonel. In fact, he called me on the phone one day, and he says, good news, bad news. I said, what's up, Glenn? He said, what you want first? I, I don't care. I said, give me the good news first. He said, the good news is we've named the unit. It's going to be the 4477th Test and Evaluation Flight. How come it's going to be a flight, Glenn? 
a squadron brings too much attention to us. We're low profile. Okay, I can live with that. What's the bad news? He says, the bad news is I made colonel, and they're sending me to Egypt. I'm saying, my God, you're ripping the guts out of my program here. And he said, I, sus I really suggest you call Colonel Ron Clements at Nellis and, uh, and talk to him about, about what we're going to do. So I'm sitting there staring at my phone, and it rings, and it's Colonel Clements offering me the job, which was a thrilling thing. I got out of the Pentagon a year early, and that's never a bad deal. So I hired Mike Scott, who then came back later as a lieutenant colonel. When I hired him initially, he was a captain, and he came back as a lieutenant colonel and was the final commander and was responsible for shutting the whole thing down. Jack Manclark is a senior executive service, uh, runs Air Force TE, and um, some of the others you may know. I also have to say, this was uh, Earl Henderson's change of command. They dressed them all up real pretty that day. And that's an F-5 from the aggressor. See, we flew the Cessna 404, we flew the F-5s with the aggressors, we flew the MiGs, and uh, sometimes the T-38 as well. So we were pretty well multi-qualified, and we had no problem with that. But we had, we had really good people, too. <clears throat> These enlisted people, I can't say enough about them. They were just absolutely stunningly effective. So the key players on the initial cadre, Ron Iverson, later retired as a three-star ran the Nellis operations, he got promoted and got moved out, and Jose Oberly took over and was the first OPSO at Tonopah. Jerry Huff I depended on to get the airfield built, he was the straw boss up there. Uh, Devil Muller, Don Muller, set up the project security, which lasted longer than did the 117 program. We never had a, a major breach in security that I'm aware of. Uh, then I had my three Navy guys, Chuck Heatley, uh, Tom Morgenfell, and Hugh Brown. And Tom Morgenfell later got out and was the chief test pilot for Lockheed and did the F-22 work and the JSF, the F-35. So a notable career. Chuck Heatley, uh, I always call him my, he was the commander's action group all wrapped up in one person, giving me lists of things to do that I could never ever get done, like call them the Red Eagles, like this, like that, the other. Heater uh, retired as a Navy captain, and sadly, Lieutenant Hugh Brown was killed during our project in a MiG-17. Uh, Bob Drabant, if you know Bob, Bob was famous for turning John Boyd's energy maneuverability stuff into something that was quantifiable and interpretable by fighter pilots, the charts. So Bob made the EM charts. He took the computer time from Tom Christie down at Eglin and translated it out and then brought it out to us. So Bob, Bob was uh, a non-rated officer but a very talented aerospace engineer, and he currently is very much involved as a GS double digit, I don't think 14 or 15, they're at Nellis uh, running Air Force TE, or the Air Force test program there at Nellis. So Bob Draband. Then the GCI guys, we had to have GCI, and so we had those two, Jim Keyes and Chops, Bud Horan. And uh, then in the maintenance, I won't go through them all, but these guys, these guys literally turned hulks. Like you, if you go over here and go, go on the tour, uh, like I went on with General uh, Cooper today, which was a wonderful tour, and I thank you. If you're here, sir, thank you again for that. And you look at some of the state that those airplanes are in, some of our airplanes were in near that state as well. And these guys rebuilt them. I mean, they built them and made them airworthy enough for us to fly safely. And, um, of course, we had our admin guy. He was our class clown. We had a lot of fun with Gary Llewellyn. Um, <clears throat> some of our challenges. We had no TA, no table of allowance or manpower document. <clears throat> we didn't know how long these engines were going to last. Nobody knew. And um, so we just ran them until they didn't work anymore. <laughs> uh, parts. One of the big things that might interest you was birds. Unbeknownst to us in any of our foresight and planning, 
birds became a major problem because there was some variety of chi-chi bird up there that was inhabited the area around our runway and absolutely drove us nuts with bird strikes. And they went through even having falconry up there and all kinds of things. Shotguns, you know, pilots with shotguns on bird patrol. And uh, <laughs> it was a major problem. Of course, security and the fact that we were gone a lot, sometimes for extended periods of time, the families didn't know what was going on, uh, that was tough on them. And uh, so their home life suffered, I'm sure, some more than others. Uh, and then along about mid-80s, under George Jennings' watch, uh, they got told to uh, put them back in uniform and get haircuts. And so they had to transition back into a Blue Air Force unit and start getting MEIs and all of those inspections and stuff like that. And that was a hard thing for some of the older guys to take after 10 or 15 years of other type activity. And some of them bailed out as a result of it. And of course, financial. As the Cold War wound down, financial constraints became the ultimate deal that caused General Hawley to say, that's enough, guys, shut it down. And that's what happened. So here's our Class A mishaps. We had two fatal accidents. Uh, Hugh Brown already mentioned. Um, it's only fair that I point out that I got fired over that accident. And um, they didn't kill me, but they moved me out. And Earl Henderson took over. A uh, great friend of mine, Earl Henderson, for sure. But uh, he took over for a while, and uh, then we had actually the same guy that crash-landed the MiG-17 was killed in the MiG-23, Mark Posti. His family was here for the coming out when we had the Air Force announcement last November here at the Air Force Museum. And so that was that. So you want to look at what did we have when. I'll give you a second to digest this. Those are years across the top. So you can see we phased down the MiG-17s in 81. By 82, we had no more 17s. By then, we were starting to ramp up MiG-23s. Fairly level, stable volume or, or inventory of MiG-21s. We peaked out at a total of 27 airplanes. Um, and with those 27 airplanes, we flew over 15,000 sorties and exposed almost 6,000 air crews to this particular project with no security problems. We exposed both Air Force and Navy Marine Corps pilots at a rate of about two to one. So what's our return on investment? Well, things changed. Uh, the props and machine gun, I don't know, anybody knows what the kill ratios were there. Uh, jets and machine guns, though, in Korea, about 15 to 1. Vietnam, I don't know, I wouldn't argue any of these numbers, but 7 to 1. Um, according to one internet report, the Navy did lose an F-18 to a Foxbat, an F a MiG-25, during the Desert Storm. I've only seen that in one place, and I don't know whether it's true or not, but I thought I'd at least throw it up there. And worldwide, the kill ratio of the F-15, we've never lost an F-15 in air combat. So can you say that there's anything to learn from that? I don't know. We'll talk about that more in just a second. But this is kind of a summary over the 10 years of what we got going. And what the people that participate have to say most is buck fever, man. You know, if you've ever had your sights on a deer for the first time, you know how you get the shakes. And that was the same kind of experience that guys had in air-to-air -air combat that we kind of got them by. And we thought that was cool. And the other thing was tiny jets as compared to ours. We were used to flying air combat looking at these gigantic planforms, smoking planforms of F-4s. And suddenly, we had to teach these guys how to look for canopy glints 
and things like that. If a MIG is converting to your 6 o'clock, a canopy glint might be all you see because he's pointing at you the whole time and his radar, his visual cross-section is tiny. I'll show you a picture. He starts out okay there, but then you're going to see another shot there where he's in formation with the F-4 and he does a defensive turn here and the F-4 kind of goes into a, an attack type position. But you can see how small that airplane is and when he uh, turns and points at you or turns tail to you, he absolutely turns invisible. So that was a real big challenge. So what's the value? Did our program help with that F-15 kill ratio? That's for the research historians out there to do the search on and uh, figure that out, because I don't know. I'm sure that maybe a few did, but maybe not. I think the training that we gave them created a mindset which led to the results that we're proud of. What now? Well, after kind of a slump where the aggressor program was kind of shut down but kept alive, and I like to think of that with the story of the, of the sourdough bread. Everybody knows that you can go on a, on a roundup, you always have plenty of steaks, and you're always going to camp by a stream so you've got plenty of water. So what Cookie's got to do is make bread, right? What does he do? He uses sourdough bread, and what do you have to have, ladies, for sourdough bread? A starter, right? So you never cook the starter. You always got to save the starter back so that you can make the next batch of sourdough bread. And that's what they did with the aggressors. They kept them alive as a detachment within Red Flag, and now they're starting to stand them back up again, and that's great. They're both in the same building, the same original aggressor squadron numbers of the, of the TAC squadrons, and the F-16 is doing a mighty job replicating the fulcrum. There's four of them in, in three different war paint schemes, and here's fulcrums. So you even have a look-alike. Not perfect. Better than it could be, and about the same size. The F-15, in its blue war paint, aggressor squadron, replicating the flanker, about the same size, maybe a little smaller, but still doing a job. So here we have the aggressors, all in a line. The operational Air Force, well, those of you that pay attention know that... Uh, we went to Cope, India. We had a chance to fly against the uh, Su-27 and the MiG-21 Bisons and maybe some of the other Indian airplanes. The guys have gone to Malaysia and fought against the MiG-29s in Malaysia. The Germans, when they were still flying their MiG-29s, came through the U.S. and there was a lot of opportunity to fly against actual MiG-29s there. And we have at least two Air Force pilots, both of which are retired now, but uh, both of whom flew MiG-29s operationally with the German Air Force after the wall came down. So that's where we are. This is the goal. You'll see the Sparrow coming in from the right 5 o'clock, smoking like a hussy, but doing the job. It's the MiG-21, that's the desired result. And here's the desired result of a MiG-29. This is Bosnia. Okay? So, this is where we've been. Hour and eight minutes. Maybe an hour after the introduction. If I ever meet that guy, I'll let you know. So at this point in time, um, we'll call it a night.